Uh, what a year. We have seen the end of the longest economic expansion in history. We've seen the sharpest stock market decline, uh, record US unemployment, a global pandemic, widespread social protests, and it's only August. So I'm blaming my first grey hair on the chaos that has been 2020. But of course, COVID-19 was something that no one could predict. It's what's known as a black swan event, an unpredictable event that results in widespread and severe consequences. And this quote sums things up nicely. There are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. And that's exactly what we saw uh, back in late February. It was more than a month before New Zealand went into level four lockdown. And it was probably before many people in this part of the world realised just how serious COVID-19 would turn out to be. And the US market posted its fastest 30% drop ever. It took just 22 days. The second, third and fourth fastest drops, you have to go all the way back to the 1930s to see during the Great Depression. And for context, the GFC took 250 days and the dot-com crash took 369 days. So no matter how much research and reading and following markets you do, there are always going to be those unknown unknowns. But what you can control is how you react to that and how quickly you react once that event does become known. So back in January, um, which was a month before that stock market fall, Felix, who is one of the portfolio managers of the Global Equity Fund, was in Hong Kong. And he saw on the ground how things were playing out. So on his return, we trimmed some of our travel and China-related names. These are names like Louis Vuitton and Starbucks, which have a significant presence in China. And that helped us to weather the downturn. And then as the pandemic progressed, we started to add names that we thought would benefit from COVID-19. These are companies like video game companies and supermarkets. I don't think any of us will forget the bizarre phenomenon that was toilet paper hoarding. <laughs> so in terms of the economic impact of COVID-19, global growth has really taken a hit. Um, the IMF expect global growth to be down 4.9% in 2020. And to put that in context, even in 2009 during the GFC, global growth only declined 0.1%. So I'm sure this is a word you've heard far too much in the last six months, but it really is unprecedented. Now it does vary slightly by region. The US is expected to be down 8%, Europe's expected to be down 10%, but remarkably China, although slowing from its prior 6% growth, it's one of the few economies that's expected to grow in 2020, up 1%. Sorry to interrupt. If you enjoy this content, make sure you subscribe so you do not miss the next one and hit this like button to let me know that you want more information like this. Thank you. The good news is that there is a rebound expected in 2021. So the IMF are forecasting global growth of 5.4%. Now, as lockdowns spread across the world, we saw businesses laying off employees, and we saw US unemployment claims spike. Uh, we went from a 50-year US unemployment record low um, to an all-time record high in what seemed like overnight. 
But when things are changing this quickly, we can't rely on some of the typical economic indicators that we normally would, um, because by the time they're released, things have already changed. So we had to innovate and use things like high frequency indicators. So these are things that give us a better idea of real time things happening on the ground so that we can make changes. These are things like um, open table restaurant bookings, US airline passenger growth, and things like the Google mobility tracker, which shows um, foot traffic in various areas. But now to the good news, which um, explains why share markets have rebounded so strongly. And it's because policymakers have really come to the rescue. So they've been putting out fires left, right and centre. We've got central bank chairs from around the world here. We have Adrian Orr from New Zealand, Christine Lagarde from the ECB, Jerome Powell from the Fed and Philip Lowe from the RBA in Australia. And what they've been doing around the world is they've been easing monetary policy. The chart on the left shows that 70% of central banks globally are cutting rates and that's a higher percentage than we saw during the GFC. And on the right, you can see that average interest rates around the world are at a record low. And when I say record low, I really mean it. So the Bank of England has data going back 5,000 years, and we're the lowest ever. Now, quantitative easing is where central banks purchase securities. And in response to the pandemic, we saw central bank purchases spike. They're now at around $6 trillion, which is about 30 times the GDP of New Zealand. And even at the peak of the GFC, central bank purchases didn't even hit $3 trillion. And the speed of the response has been quite incredible. What took central banks three years to do during the GFC, they completed in less than a month this time. So this is where the term, don't fight the Fed, comes from. And then on top of easing monetary policy, the fiscal stimulus by governments around the world has been huge. Um, it amounts to almost 5% of global GDP, more than double that seen during the GFC. So the green bars here show the amount of fiscal stimulus as a percentage of GDP during the GFC, and then the black bar shows it now. And this is how countries have funded unemployment businesses and helped support businesses through this time. And so with all that stimulus bubbling away, um, we are starting to see green shoots in the real-time data. So this chart shows the Goldman Sachs current activity indicator, which is made up of, of a bunch of the high-frequency indicators that I touched on earlier. And you can see that China has shown an almost V-shaped recovery, which is important given it's the second-largest economy in the world and it's the biggest contributor to global growth. You can see the US and Europe are lagging a little bit behind. Um, they obviously saw cases spike much later and they're still dealing with those first waves or second waves. And so after the fastest ever 30% drop in markets, we've seen an incredibly strong rebound. It's been boosted by all of that monetary and fiscal stimulus. So in April, US shares had their largest monthly increase since 1987, up 13%. And both the US, which is the red line, and uh, New Zealand, which is the green line, are now less than 5% from their highs that they reached in late February. And incredibly, the NASDAQ, which isn't shown on this chart, but it's an index made up of the largest technology companies in the US, that one is up 20% year to date, when all other indices are flat or down. Of course, we've also seen retail investors come back in full force. 
um, driven by a few things, boredom during lockdown, some slick new trading apps, um, as well as FOMO, fear of missing out. You know, no one wanted to miss the rebound. But of course, this makes us a little bit nervous because as quickly as retail investors can come into the market, they can also leave. So we're keeping an eye on this. Other risks also remain out there. Uh, the key one being COVID-19 and continuation of first waves or second waves. But never before has there been such a coordinated global focus on healthcare and vaccine development. So around the world, they're working on over 150 uh, vaccines and there are now five in stage three clinical trials or about to go into stage three. Um, and there are plans to have doses ready as early as December this year. So the speed of this, again, is quite astounding. Um, normally vaccines take 10 to 15 years to come to market, and the record before this one was four years, which was for the mumps vaccine. So to get here in 12 to 18 months, it's pretty incredible. There are no guarantees though, so <laughs> we're watching it. Now the other risk on the horizon is the US election in November, and Biden has made a lot of progress in the polls over the last few months. And in large part, it's to do with the perception that Donald Trump has mishandled the COVID-19 response in the US. So we try not to place too much weight on the polls, given what happened last time. Um, but as they currently stand, Biden is at around 50%, Trump is 40 to 42%, um, and then we can't forget Kanye West at 2%. <laughs> but if Biden were to win, um, it would likely mean higher taxes and more regulation, but also a rise in the green economy uh, and more infrastructure spending. Now, US China. We do think it could get worse as we near the election, and ultimately we think it's going to be a long-term issue um, as both countries are battling for supremacy. So with all of this risk and uncertainty in the world, how are we managing the portfolio? Um, well, for us, it's all about stock picking, um, especially for funds like the KiwiSaver Aggressive Fund, which has a time horizon of 15 plus years. Um, we're looking for companies that we think will be significantly larger over that time, that time period. And what we've seen over the last four or five months is that consumer and corporate behaviour is being reshaped. Uh, things like the reversal of globalisation, an increased focus on healthcare and hygiene, an acceleration in e-commerce and cashless payments, and also the rise in the green economy. And so this is a snapshot of the global equities portfolio and some of the themes that we're invested in. The largest bubble there is uh, exposed to the exponential growth in data and digitalization. And so what I mean by that is that consumers and businesses are shifting online. And in order for that to happen, it needs to be enabled by both software and hardware. So a lot of those companies would be in that bubble there. But what I want to talk about tonight um, is transformational healthcare and e-commerce. So Thermo Fisher Scientific is one company tapped into transformational healthcare. It's one of the largest life sciences companies globally. Uh, it covers the full spectrum of scientist and research lab requirements from high-end analytical instruments and lab equipment to test tubes, chemicals, lab coats, everything. And it's played a key role in the response to COVID-19. So the company does a much better job of explaining it than me. So I've got a video here. 
hopefully it will play. Almost half the world's population is in lockdown. The volume of confirmed cases has risen at a dramatic rate, and so has the number of fatalities. Novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, has spread across the globe with devastating effect. Thermo Fisher Scientific's scale and depth of capabilities have never been more vital, and our mission, to enable our customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer, has never been more important. But let's take a look back. The first case of COVID-19 was reported in Wuhan, China in December 2019, and we were there. On January 6th, our thermoscientific Techni Spirit transmission electron microscope was used to characterize the pathogen. Over 1,200 boxes of our reagents and assays were then fast-tracked so researchers could rapidly develop tests. Meanwhile, Scientists in Australia used our Applied Biosystems Seek Studio instrument to sequence the virus's genome and provide the roadmap for a diagnostic test. On January 30th, the World Health Organization declared a global emergency, and we were there. Our thermoscientific cryos electron microscope was used by a team of researchers from the US to show the first three-dimensional structure of the coronavirus spike protein, key to understanding how to target the virus. By February 19th, 14,000 new cases were reported in Hubei province, and we were there. In March, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 to be a pandemic. Our real-time PCR test, which diagnoses the virus in four hours, was authorized by the US FDA for emergency use. It then received the CE mark in Europe, and now nearly 50 countries are authorized to use our test which is based on our gold standard technology. As the virus spreads globally, we are producing more than 5 million of our COVID-19 diagnostic tests per week. At Thermo Fisher Scientific, we remain at the forefront of the fight against coronavirus. We're providing personal protective equipment to keep healthcare workers safe. We're modifying our production lines to make components for ventilators and produce hand sanitizer. We're partnering with pharma and biotech customers who are working on many of the top projects to develop COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. And that's just the start. There's a long way to go. But as one team, committed to our mission, we will prevail. We have much to be proud of. Very dramatic. <laughs> but between testing and vaccine development, Thermo Fisher is working on more than 200 COVID-related projects around the world. And so regardless of which vaccine wins the race, Thermo Fisher will be involved in one way or another. Now another company tapped into transformational healthcare is Intuitive Surgical. So they're the leading manufacturer in robotic surgery. Their system is called the Da Vinci and they have a 20 year head start on any competitors. And this image shows how it works. The surgeon sits at a console and guides the forearms to operate on the patient. It does look like a bit um, science fiction-y and it could go wrong, <laughs> but there are a lot of benefits. So there's better vision and control for the surgeon, resulting in smaller and more targeted incisions, less blood loss, less pain, fewer complications and quicker recovery for the patient. 
And there are now 5,500 systems around the world used in over 1 million surgeries a year. And around the world, there's a new um, da Vinci procedure starting every 26 seconds. So having this large installed base with thousands of surgeons trained on the da Vinci system means it's very difficult for competitors to break into that market. And with only 2% of surgeries worldwide performed by robots, we think there's still a long runway ahead for intuitive surgical. Now both of these healthcare companies have done very well over the long term. Um, Thermo Fisher up 25% per annum over the last five years. Um, Intuitive Surgical up 31% per year, outperforming the MSCI World Index, which is the line along the bottom, which has generated 7.5% uh, per annum. And Thermo Fisher, as a COVID beneficiary, has performed really well this year, um, up 40% year to date versus the market, which has been flat. Now, one of the themes that's been significantly accelerated is the growth in e-commerce. Months of lockdowns forced consumers to shift online. And even as lockdowns ease, we think that it's going to be a more permanent shift in consumer behaviour. Whether it's just thinking twice about shopping in crowded stores, or whether it's people who had never experienced e-commerce before, and they were forced to, realising that it's actually a pretty good way to shop. So the speed at which this has occurred, again, is phenomenal. It took 10 years for e-commerce penetration to go from 6 to 16%, and it took two months to go from 16 to 27% penetration. And of course, Amazon is probably the first name that comes to mind when you think of e-commerce, and for good reason. Um, it's got around a 50% market share in the US, uh, and they just reported very impressive results. They talked about grocery delivery capacity expanding by 160% in the quarter, and online grocery sales tripling. The image shows here, uh, shown here is one of Amazon's fulfillment centres. The largest one is over 1.2 million square feet, the equivalent of 15 rugby fields. And they're also a big employer in the US. So they hired 175,000 people since March, and they now have over a million people working for them. E-commerce isn't Amazon's only business, though. Um, they're also tapped into the data and digitalization trend that I mentioned earlier through Amazon Web Services. And this is essentially outsourced computing or cloud computing, so it helps power a huge number of companies around the world, and they have a 50% market share there as well. Now, the last company I want to mention is uh, PayPal. It's the digital payments leader, and it's very well positioned to benefit from the growth in e-commerce. They also reported their earnings last week, and it was very impressive. They added 20 million new accounts over the quarter. That's four times the population of New Zealand, and they're expecting to add another 70 million over the next six months. So the performance of these have also been very impressive. Um, Amazon and PayPal have been key contributors to the fund performance this year. Amazon is up 73% this year, and Amazon, uh, sorry, PayPal is up 84% this year. So finally, just to wrap up in terms of our outlook, we expect interest rates to stay low and inflation to stay reasonably contained. Um, we're conscious of the amount of uncertainty out there, and so we do expect volatility to remain reasonably elevated, and we're keeping a close eye on those risks around COVID, the election, and geopolitics. Given I opened this presentation with a quote, I thought it would be only appropriate to end with one, and so I chose this one from Sir Winston Churchill. A pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity, and an optimist sees opportunity in every difficulty. 
And that's exactly what we're doing. So in this time of uncertainty and chaos, we're focused on stock picking and finding opportunities to own fantastic companies that will benefit from the themes that are really changing the world that we live in.